0: I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands.
1: Every day some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows, mistakes and triumphs, but always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This
0: is Unfinished Biz. So we track data on what
2: people call influencers. So those are people with blogs or YouTube channels or that are large on Instagram. Um, And it turns out that when those people get really excited about a brand or a product, they tend to talk about it um, and that brand
0: or product tends to grow. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Connor Begley and Jonathan Namnath, co-founders of Tribe Dynamics, which has reinvented how marketing and social analytics work within the beauty industry. But how did two college buddies end up as
3: beauty guys? We had this idea that marketing itself had to change because consumers were getting their information from a different place. And so marketing has to follow that, right? So just as people are you know, taking money out of their print budgets and such like that and putting them into digital marketing, uh, I think more specifically in digital marketing, if the content is being created on these platforms, you have to have an answer for that as a, as a
1: brand. Disruptive technology? Often worth it, but never easy. Buckle up. Unfinished Biz starts now. So
0: Connor and Jonathan have done something really special. They didn't create a brand, but they've actually invented a metric. And that metric didn't exist five years ago. Robin, so what is it? So it's a thing called EMV, Earn Media Value. uh, And it allows brands to track social activity online. It's become that pervasive metric that beauty businesses use.
1: All right. Do you have EMV? No, man. That's not how it works. Okay. What, do you, what would your <laughs> wife say your EMV is? I, I'd have to ask the guys if it goes negative. But in all seriousness, it's amazing the power of influencers in today's market and how it helps grow brands. And as a result, this metric is very important to companies of all sizes.
0: We caught up with Connor and Jonathan over some beers at VMG's offices in San Francisco, which isn't too far off from where Tribe itself started.
2: John and I's story is we met in school. John was a couple years older than me. Well, maybe a year older, but had skipped a grade. So it was, you know, a year older and a year smarter. Um, and, you know, I think every night when we were in school, we would drink several beers or many beers and then talk about business
1: all night. Were you of age?
2: Uh, obviously. Yeah, there's only, there's only one answer for that. <laughs> I like the pause and the you, you guys looking
0: at each other. It's teamwork right there. <laughs>
2: Um, so yeah, so we would get together and talk about kind of, um, you know, all kinds of different business ideas. And then after we graduated, uh, we both went to startups and both grew very quickly, uh, different fields. So John was on the software engineering side. I was on the sales side. And then it was funny. I was just walking by this wine bar earlier today. It's called district. If you guys know it in Soma and, um, the catalyst was, We met at District and we wrote down all the startup ideas we could think of and then, you know, stored those in Evernote. I left, went to Australia and we were chatting via Gchat while he was with his other company. And we went back and revisited the list and all or like nine out of the 10 ideas we had come up with were now companies. And so we thought that that was a clear sign that we knew how to do this stuff. <laughs> uh, turns out ideas aren't the only thing that matters. Um, but, yeah, I think that's kind of the gist of it.
3: Yeah. I mean, we, we had had kind of like informal versions of that for years. And then I think finally we were like, we should actually just write these down, like uh, legitimately sit down and do this. And um, I think it, it, we tried to kind of uh, be pretty diversified in like what, uh, what, what kinds of ideas, you know. So it was like healthcare or education or... Whatever, and we tried to come up with ideas that were kind of interesting in terms of where the world was going. And um, I think uh, this idea was really born out of the fact that uh, we were like, nobody reads magazines or newspapers anymore, and uh, nobody likes ads. So what does that mean, Uh, especially for Silicon Valley, who's I don't know, all the talent is uh, thinking about how to get people to click on more ads all the time. So uh, that's kind of. Where this specific idea came from, but so most mostly beers,
0: yeah, mostly beers. That was how we met.
2: Right?
3: Yes, yes.
0: So uh, the obvious, you know, conclusion there is that you guys wanted to to dive headfirst into the beauty category. Yeah, that was the obvious. We went education,
2: <laughs> healthcare, eyeliner. <laughs> exactly. Um, that That's was right. kind of the natural beauty path. junkie. Yes, yeah. this exact path. Right. No, I think you know for us the funny thing was on the on the beauty stuff was we. Um, Got into that space and had to have a real kind of uh, uh, moment with the two of us, like, hey, are we going to be beauty guys? Like, is this what we're going to do? And what was funny was some of our earliest employees told us that one of the primary reasons that they joined the company um, was because we had the, you know, the we made the decision to go against something that we really weren't all that interested in on a personal level, Hmm. um, but seemed to be the right business decision for for the business that we were running. Um, and that actually gave them a lot of confidence in the decisions that we were making, that we weren't going to make decisions based on vanity or based on, um, you know, personal preference, but rather what is the right thing to do for the business itself.
0: That makes a lot of um, sense. So, yeah. Maybe, but yeah, before, before we eyeliner, get to sure. <laughs> before we get too far, maybe it'd be helpful just to, to give a little bit of background on what what your business does, the services that you provide, the folks that you work with these days.
2: Yeah, so John leaned back from his microphone. I guess that's (laughs) That's my my question to answer. (laughs) (laughs) I've done it. That's what he does for a living. I've done it for a few times. Um, So we track data on what people call influencers. So those are people with blogs or YouTube channels or that are large on Instagram. Um, And it turns out that when those people get really excited about a brand or a product, they tend to talk about it, um, and that brand or product tends to grow. And so um, what that's led us to is working with corporate partners to help them identify who these up-and-coming brands are uh, so that they can either acquire them or learn from them or just benchmark their own internal brands against them, uh, as well as working on the brand side to help them figure out, okay, who are the influencers that I should work with? What can I learn from the brands that are growing really quickly in this space? Um, And then how do I understand what my competition is doing? So how do I understand, um, you know, what is working for them that I can potentially learn from? Uh, But we are primarily a data and technology company. That's really what we focus on uh, with some kind of built-in consulting at the beginning of the process.
1: Um, Yeah. Did it start out with all this figured out or how did the business really kick off?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for us, uh, it was a, a a very slow and painful learning process. Um, at the same time, you know, the thing that we always talk about was we created this really corny video that's still available. That is, was me recording it on a MacBook in a quiet room in the bottom of a WeWork uh, that then got turned into a video. And it's um, the cool part about it was we created that video maybe five years ago, right? About when we started the company. And everything in that video still holds true in terms of our theories and our, um, you know, theses on the space. And so I think the the actual product that we've provided has changed over time and has evolved significantly um, based primarily on you know, what we get from our clients, the feedback that we get from them. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's changed a lot over time for sure. Uh, evolved a lot is the way I would, I would classify it. I
3: think like the main business thesis hasn't really changed at all. I think, you know, we we had this idea that marketing itself had to change because consumers were getting their information from a different place. And so marketing has to follow that, right? So just as people are, you know, taking money out of their print budgets and such like that and putting them into digital marketing, uh, I think more specifically in digital marketing, if the content is being created on these platforms, you have to have an answer for that as a, as a brand. Uh, So, so it hasn't really changed from that at all, which is kind of surprising um, in, in some ways, uh, I think yeah. it's easy to, to take these kinds of business pivots along the way and kind of lose your, lose your way, so to speak. But, um, for us, it's, it's just been more about the business model itself changing. And, um, yeah.
1: Was there a, a notable turning point where you knew you were onto something?
3: Uh, yeah, you know, there was, there was a point where we were making, uh, something like, I don't know, I want to say $15,000 a month. And then we, we were like, you know what, how do we go about, I don't know, putting together a package of services and software and everything like that that we can actually charge five to ten thousand dollars a month for instead of charging, you know, a thousand dollars a month at a time and trying to grow that client list in that way. And um, we came up with this whole list of things that we had to, to add to our, our kind of uh, list of services and 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 data offerings and everything like that to come up with a valuable package but then Connor went around went out and within 2 weeks signed a client for $10,000 a month and all of a sudden our our revenues went from 15 to $25,000 overnight. So I think and then and then it subsequently sold another, you know, 3 or 4 over the next 2 months and it was like uh, I think we actually found a real business model here.
2: So John's sugarcoating this a little bit. We were running out of money, right? <laughs> and so, you know, for us, we it took us almost two and a half years to get to around fifteen twenty thousand dollars a month, and then you know we said okay, we're like we're not going to make it unless we hit profitability, which was about forty thousand dollars a month, and so like how could we possibly get there? I'm like we're never going to get there doing what we're doing today, and so you know how do we rethink um, kind of the process of getting to there? Right, and that's a lot of what he talked about. And then the cool part was you know we we repackaged the services, increased the price significantly, added in a little bit of consulting, um, and we went from about fifteen twenty thousand to around fifty five thousand dollars a month within like three months, um, which was a huge jump for us in that it took us two and a half years to get to the first twenty um and so yeah. And I think a cool anecdote, although this is probably not something I should say on tape, was the... I mean, you should, you should
1: definitely say
2: it. Yeah. It's a little concerning. So the month we hit profitability, we had $5,000 in the bank, and we had a $5,000 loan out to John, a note uh, from John for $5,000. Um, and that was the month that we hit profitability. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, we did hit it, which was good.
0: That's incredible.
2: Did he pay and- you
3: back? Yeah, I paid myself back. Yeah, oh, good. That's of That's tribes. Uh, yeah, and I actually invested significantly more than that too, uh, my own personal money into. It. And I think it was a, uh, it was something where we were continually trying to kind of drag this thing into existence because we, we we felt so strongly about this theory and and it really was just about. About working with the clients in a way that made sense. And I think the biggest thing is that especially if you're selling a product that is a little bit out there um, in terms of if it's not an established marketing process or something like that, they're going to need a lot more handholding than just saying, here's a dashboard, go have fun for 250 bucks a month. It's just not going to provide any value as opposed to if you actually are acting as, as almost an employee of theirs, um, they can actually get the benefit of, of that package. Um, and, and, and quite a bit more than that. Uh, so, so that but what was, what I was think, it? I
1: mean, the, the revenue was doubling, quadrupling. What was that turning point, that act of, of your customers? What did they, what value were they receiving that they're willing to pay so much more?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there were a few launching points. Um, so one launching point was even earlier on in the process. I mean, kind of, I think we skipped through that step, which was – we call it our ditch digging story. So at about a year in, we had raised $100,000. We were making $1,000 a month. And John looks over at me and he goes, dude, what the f*** are we doing? <laughs> right? We could be making more money digging ditches than we're making – doing what we're doing right now. And so around that time, we had a meeting with Brian Sugar, who's the CEO of Pop Sugar. Um, Also, well affiliated with Sequoia, et cetera, right? And this was an investment meeting. And so we go into this meeting. And of course, as the business guy, I've got the whole deck ready, then I'm ready to go through my pitch. And I get, you know, two slides into it. And Brian goes, I I really don't give a shit about your deck. Just show me the product. And so um, we start showing him the product. Him and John are geeking out, you know, over the product because he's a coder. And uh, Brian goes, All right, guys, you're no longer raising money. He goes, I'm going to give you this magical thing. It's called revenue. It makes businesses run great. Um, and you know, you guys should really focus on making money. Like that's what you should really focus on. And if you guys want to raise money in a few months, I'll help you do it. But this is really where you should focus your efforts. And so what we did was we went to all of our existing clients that were paying us $50 a month for our software. And we were like, okay, what will you pay us to do? And essentially started metaphorically digging ditches, just like what will you pay us to help you out with? And then secondarily, we actually physically went out and dug ditches. Um, so we, so John's mom lives in Marin, and we would work Monday through Friday, like seven a.m. to seven p.m. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, we would drive up to Marin, and we like ripped out a retaining wall, we built a staircase, oh, wow. et cetera, right um to uh, in order to make payroll until John's shares from his previous company released uh, and then he put 50k into the business and then you know we continued to grow at a very strong clip on a percentage basis since then and so i think the reason that was important was not necessarily from the increased revenue initially but it was from a mindset perspective mm-hmm. saying like okay let's focus on ma- actually making money as a business um and i think you know it made it really hard where you know um, because i don 't think we were particularly skilled at fundraising, we really had to build it off the backs of revenue, um, which you know means that you don 't pay yourself very much money um, but now we 're in a much better position as a business because um, because of that uh, that accidental kind of finding initially. so I think that was one of the really big breakthroughs and I think the second big breakthrough was um, a little external to us. But it was on the data side. We were tracking all of this data, trying to figure out which brands were really standing out. And the brand that stood out was a company called NYX or NYX Cosmetics, which, you know, I frankly thought was some airport in New York that we were picking (laughs) up some fake signal on. Um, But when we looked into the data, it was performing really, really well with these influencers. What does that Um, mean? So what that means is we're going to – so we track – think of it like a panel, like a Nielsen panel of influencers. So we'll track 50,000 of them within the United States. And what we're looking for is two things. One, are these influencers talking about the brand? So are they talking about it on YouTube and Instagram and blogs? And then the second thing is um, now that they're talking about it, is the consumer actually engaged with that material? Meaning, are they liking that comment or content, commenting on that content, sharing that content? Because if they are, that's a good sign that they're interested in whatever that content contains, which is often the brand name. And so um, when you're looking at NYX, there were a ton of influencers talking about the brand. And then when they did, the audience was really engaged with that material. And so, you know, and NYX at the time was beating Maybelline and CoverGirl and these other, you know, multibillion-dollar brands –
1: um, beating this, them in what way?
2: Um, in So we track, it's a metric called earned media value. And it's our estimate for how much value these influencers are generating for the brand, on behalf of the brand. And so it was beating these other brands in that metric um, when it was still a much more nascent brand. Um, and then the reason I say that's a catalyst is around the time that we changed our packages um, or changed our product offerings, Nix got acquired for $500 million by L'Oreal at this record-setting revenue multiple, um, which got us a lot of attention. Um, And so I think that was another catalyst point, was at that time, we still weren't sure that this influencer stuff worked. Like, we had our inclinations. But then when Nix got acquired for this incredible amount of money and was also generating a lot of revenue and was performing really well in the metrics that we were tracking... We said, okay, let's look at what Nix is doing. What are they doing well? Like, How are they running their own internal programs? And then how do we help teach other people how to do that? And we really structured our product offering around that. So So were you
1: just observing Nix or were they a client?
2: So at that time, we were mostly observing. They were using our data to track how they were doing. But for us early on, I think observation was a really key learning for us. Um, And I think if you look at, I think we've continued to use that as a business where we'll say, okay, what are the best-in-class doing that's working really well, and how do we learn from what they're doing and then take those lessons and apply it to the brands that we work with, right? And so, um, yeah, so it was mostly observational at first. We ended up working with them over time on the data side, um, but they really came up with all the strategies on their own. We wouldn't claim credit for that.
0: So there are other guys who obviously are, are out there sort of tracking data, Uh, coming up with their own metrics as well but i think one of the things that's always been so sort of amazing for me is that emv is now a metric that you know small indie brands know what's emv well exactly what connor said (laughs) earned media value right like that that you guys have turned that into a thing um and you know it sounds like it started with nyx but now you know you hear it whether it's a, a small indie brand or in I'd probably argue some of the you know boardrooms of some of the the largest beauty businesses out there. So what set you guys apart? I mean, other people were were other people had the same idea.
3: I think the uh, you know there's actually a technical difficulty in doing it, and and um, you know you actually have to listen to everything that people are saying and have a, a way to retroactively apply these metrics. That uh, that is probably pretty novel. I think the the key differentiator is that we're measuring basically solely engagement around that content as opposed to just sheer mentions, which I think was kind of the uh, the state of the art, if you will. And I think the other thing that people were focusing on before was uh, measuring Twitter data because of the convenience in getting that data and mass. You could say I want every single mention of this phrase or hashtag, and at the time, Twitter would just give you the, give you that data for free. Uh, which is great if you're tracking kind of overall consumer mentions or something like that. We kind of went a lot more narrower and, and kind of deep within kind of these specific influencer communities, but we wanted to do so across all of the different platforms. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Pinterest, et cetera, all at the same time. And I think uh, that focus on a engagement and b you know, going where these influencers were specifically, Was what set us apart.
2: And I think, secondarily, for us, just like, and I think this is a nod hopefully to other B2B kind of enterprise businesses out there. Not that I necessarily want to give away our own distribution strategy, but we found a lot of success in using the same philosophies that our brands were utilizing, um, but on a kind of B2B enterprise stage. And what I mean by that is our basic thesis is that the infrastructure surrounding publishing has changed dramatically. So the cost to publish content has decreased significantly, which results in a lot more people creating content, which then makes PR a lot more important because there's a lot more publishers. And so how that applies to us is very early on, we created our own research and then utilized external partners like the CEW or Women's Wear Daily, or business of fashion, or whatever, or the you know the um, investment banks, etc., as our own forms of earned media. Where you know the CEW was not someone that was a traditional publisher in this space, but now because the cost to publish content is so cheap, like they don't need to create the same infrastructure that Women's Wear Daily had historically, um, they now become one of the largest and most important publishers in that entire vertical. And so for us, I think the thing that's kind of cool is we've built our entire marketing engine around the exact same philosophies that we advise to our clients. And I think it's helped to establish us um, as, a, as a leader in that space. Um, so I think that's the other thing on the, on the go-to-market kind
1: of distribution side that helped us out quite a bit. Interesting analog. You mean like two average Joes launching a podcast?
2: Ah, something like that,
1: <laughs> right? But I mean,
2: again, right? For when, you when guys, when we actually
0: go start ditch, uh, digging ditches? I mean, yeah. that's. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
1: does, your mom uh, need, does your mom need any more ditches Doug, And Marin? Yeah, there's plenty.
3: Yeah, she's got a big backyard, and uh, you know, just constantly. Uh, Good. I'll send. I'll send prepare. Robin. Nice. Yep, perfect. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, it's it's been an interesting discovery along the way, specifically as it pertains to focusing on, you know, this specific vertical that we're in in beauty that has enabled this uh, publishing kind of uh, go to market strategy that Connor is referring to and. I think if, you know, if we had made any of these kinds of decisions differently, it wouldn't really worked in the same way. So we get a lot of the kind of network effects of people knowing what EMV is, specifically in the beauty industry. Outside of that, people are like, I've never heard of it. So so I think that'll continue to kind of play into how we expand in the future.
0: I mean, at what point did you realize that, hey, EMV is a thing? It's, 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 it's kind of taken a life of its own where before you guys were, I'm sure, sort of, you know, uh, Adding it to to particular conversations of influencers, so that it, it was it was giving it sort of you know credibility. But at some point, I'm sure that it just took off on its own.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was tough because I think at different points, we thought the metric was really interesting, obviously, and a good way to measure things. I think the Knicks example first was a really clear example of like, wait a minute, like this number means something. And then over time, I think we realized that for these companies, they were having a really hard time measuring this activity and that this metric was a good, really good way to, to measure that. I think there was some really conscientious efforts on the product side to integrate it and to make it the center point of a lot of the software that we distribute and the reporting that we do, which contributed. And then I also think on the marketing side, you, know, you really just follow the signal when you find it. And I think at different times we've gotten advice on, you know, when you find a distribution strategy that works, like, just do it and do it heavy. Um, And I think that uh, for us, again, a lot of it was just following the signal on our side. But there are certainly times where, like, is this going to be the centerpiece of our company? And I think that um, it really has become uh, the centerpiece. And I think – and I don't think that's because – you know, part of it's because we've done a good job of marketing it. But part of it's because there was just a really big need in the market. Um, to measure this kind of thing. Um, So, yeah.
1: What's been your opinion on the change of the influencer strategy with more and more influencers monetizing? What's changed since the the early days of Tribe? Yeah, it's
2: a good question. I think that for us, one of the biggest learnings about the influencer space was um, the lack of reliance on paying people. Because I think that when people focus on influencers, they tend to focus on Okay, who are the big names and who's getting paid to to talk about these brands when the reality is that the brands that are being really successful are actually focusing significantly more on building relationships, getting to know the influencers, fitting into the content that is organic and authentic in nature rather than having to pay to get exposure. Um, At the same time, I do think that there's a really big discrepancy between the amount of money that is getting paid to these influencers um, and the amount of money that's getting paid to more traditional institutions um, that have more historical measurement when it comes to value attribution. And so it's like, you know, if you look at Glamour Magazine's Instagram account, I think it has like 100,000 followers. And there's probably a 1,000 influencers that have a larger following than that, right? Like right. M- maybe more. Um, and most of those will dwarf Glamour Magazine's But Glamour Magazine is probably still making a lot more than every single one of those influencers. And so I think the reality is that those – I think the the dollar volume will continue to increase over time. I just think as a brand, the important thing here is understanding which bucket you fit into. So if you're a toothpaste brand, like nobody's going to talk about you. It's very unlikely. Um, But if you're a brand in a passion category where people are talking about you already – Fitting into that organic, authentic content where they're just talking about the brands they really like is actually the way to win. And so, I think what's changed to your question is I do think there's more awareness of that concept now versus historically there was a lot of spray and pray, a lot of you know taking what they've done in traditional media buying and bringing it into the influencer space. So just reallocating print budget to you know influencer budget and paying them in the same way that they would pay a print kind of magazine. Um, So I do think that the sophistication on the brand side has accelerated significantly. Um, And I also think that although the budgets on the influencer side have increased significantly in terms of how much they're getting paid, I actually still think it's not quite there. Um, And that's mostly because people just aren't fully comfortable with it yet. Uh, Even though the audiences are are frankly significantly bigger and significantly more trusting than they are of traditional media,
1: does the sponsorship cause churn? Do they lose credibility with their ultimate audiences?
3: I think it's pretty self-regulating. I I think that's the you know we have data to back up that certain influencers, when they go out there and they uh, do a a whole bunch of uh, sponsored content, that as a result their engagement rates do actually take a hit and. Uh, the ones that are uh, doing uh, the best are actually actively tagging other people in the community. They're tagging tagging a bunch of different brands. They uh, and they actually have a bunch of content that's not brand uh, related. So so they have to act kind of like a magazine in the sense that uh, if your entire magazine was all ads, no one would read it. Uh, but you you kind of have to come up with what is the right balance to like pay my bills and then. Also have interesting content for your for your, for your community, and so even while the kind of subscriber counts don't necessarily drop off, um, the true engagement kind of counts do drop off.
1: So, is there a life cycle to being an influencer? I think there can
2: be if you don't do it right. So the you know the uh, ultimate example of it dropping off, like John's talking about, is Michelle Fan. Um, so early on, Michelle Fan when she would talk about your brand. You'd sell out instantaneously. And then as she became more corporate and L'Oreal put their stamp on her forehead and started restricting her editorial content, you know, her audience started losing faith in her as a publisher. And so I think what John's referring to when he talks about self-regulation is that I think some of this is prevented in that the influencer gets an immediate feedback loop. So if they publish something that looks inauthentic or looks like they're paid off or looks like they're representing a product that isn't real or good, um, then their audience gets called out Mm -hmm. immediately. Um, And so I think that it tends to self-regulate in that if the influencers, like there's a really cool video from, um, I'm forgetting her name right now, but where she details, she said, okay, I did 66 YouTube videos in the last year. Of those 66 YouTube videos, 20 of them were sponsored. Of those 20 that were sponsored, 15 of them were sponsored for one minute, and the other five were sponsored for the full video. And actually lays that entire thing out for her audience Mm -hmm. in order to maintain that trust. And I think the audience knows that she has to make money. This is part of her profession, and so they're accepting of that. Uh, But on the influencer side, being upfront, being forthright um, is the way that you prevent and representing brands that you actually believe in um, is the way that you retain that credibility and that authenticity
0: so you guys have obviously focused a lot of your attention on beauty, but you know I guess this the the idea of influencers potentially could work in other categories as well. Uh, are there categories that kind of jump out at you as you think about you know uh, areas that that make more sense to either be working with influencers, tracking influencers?
2: Well, I know one category John's obsessed with is uh, travel, um, so I think that one is interesting.
0: Huh.
3: Yeah, I think uh, you know if you're if you're trying to discover where to go next, I think there's like some of this like kind of inception thing where if you're if you're seeing all these people go to a particular island that you've never heard of, whether it's a celebrity or otherwise, just a friend. Uh, you're just much more likely to to think about that the next time you're going to book travel. And if you look at the uh, tourism board budgets, they're just massive. And the state of the art of of, of advertising for, say, San Francisco in South America, which that's a thing, there's, there's there's someone that works for the San Francisco Tourism Board advertising in South America to try to get them to come up here. What do they do? They go out, they buy a bunch of billboards in the different cities, and then they try to sh- they try to chat- track how much those billboards are affecting uh, those those flight data that they have. Uh, I think a much easier strategy would be to fly a bunch of influencers from those specific cities uh, that you're trying to target and uh, show them a good time in your city and. And and see that kind of skyrocket. So I I, I, actually, I need to be a
1: travel influencer. that's no, yeah. it'd be that pretty, pretty sweet. That no. sounds like a good <laughs> this game. is kind of crazy
0: because you know even and I don't
1: I'll hashtag sponsor that exactly. <laughs> it's crazy
0: because I think at this point in time, as we kind of go to different cities, um, my wife and I like we actually go and check Instagram to see where people are going. Because um, yeah. I don't Trip advisors. is just not going to cut it, and there's no real good way of doing that other than if you already know a bunch of influencers who are going to a cool like. I track these guys because they go to cool places in Stockholm, for example, or whatever yep. it might be. Yep. So if you were able to build something, it's almost like Yelp of influencers for travel. That's probably the worst way to describe that, <laughs> But something like that.
2: Well, I mean, the thing that was crazy, what it got us on that track was uh, we looked at all the data. So the Caribbean islands published their tourism data and we started correlating our own data with tourism data. And the number one, Island that we tracked was this uh, island called Turks and Caicos, which is one that you know um, is it Tart that sends all of the influencers to Turks and Caicos? Of them have I think. Several of them have. So it's a number. Do they send their data providers there? (laughs) (laughs) They should. They should. Uh, But it was the number one brand that we were tracking uh, in EMV and was also the fastest growing island in tourism. And so for us, we're just waiting for one of these islands to call us up, and we're like, we will blow up your tourism. <laughs> like, we will explode it. And then we know that we'll just get one after another after another. Because, again, to your point, like, I think the mechanism for learning about which flight you're gonna take, pretty well understood. Getting a hotel, you're gonna use TripAdvisor, Kayak, whatever. Um, even, like, even the experiences, you'll use Yelp or TripAdvisor. But where you're actually gonna go, um, it's not really well mapped out yet, and I think it's very natural in this space where, if you're taking a bunch of really cool photos and videos and whatever, you know, that's just that that aesthetic appeal um, really captures people's attention um, and helps them figure out where they want to go. And so, uh, yeah, so that's one that we're really bullish on. That's a little, you know, uh, not obvious. So Turks uh, yeah. and
3: Caicos, if you're listening, call
1: us up.
2: Well, we, no, we got to pick a. We random have a huge island.
1: following in the Caribbean, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Good thing you mentioned Watch out. Good thing you, good
1: thing you raised We might that.
2: do it pro bono, too. Just yeah. send us on the trip, too, awesome. and yeah, we're good to go. Now
0: now, now that we've kind of baited you in, a, in answering that question, how do you maintain focus as entrepreneurs? Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, I think, I don't know. I feel like we're, we're actually fairly good uh, mm-hmm. on the focus side. I think we, um, you know... Early on, we were voracious readers. Now I'm really lazy because the business is going. Um, but like, just reading constantly <laughs> in order to figure out how to make the business survive. Give up reading. Right. <laughs> yeah. Way to, to help out the,
1: future, the children of the future. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Um, but read a few books that had really consistent themes. So there's one called Crossing the Chasm. Uh, another one called um, Zero to One. Another one, so the whole Clayton Christensen series, if you know that, like the um, Founder's Dilemma and those. And if you looked across those books, there's a very consistent theme of kind of focusing initially on a target niche and dominating that niche um, and then slowly expanding into other horizontal categories. Mm-hmm. So for you know Clayton Christensen, it's about taking a market that some uh, dominant competitor has and slicing off a chunk and just serving that chunk way better. Um, for um, Crossing the Chasm – It was okay, similar to like the PayPal model where PayPal early on, almost 95 percent of their revenue came from uh, the eBay power sellers because, you know, for eBay at the time, if you wanted to like sell your Mickey Mouse figurine, you had to like – you, you know you had to actually mail or you wanted to buy one you had to actually mail a paper check to that person mm-hmm. and so for them transferring money was disproportionately important than it was for other people now over time transferring money online you know became a more regular thing and PayPal expanded its audience but the same thing holds true for us where You know, if the VP of marketing at a top beauty company doesn't figure out how to do influencers, they're going to get fired. It's not like a nice to have or Mm -hmm. something they should do. It's like they have to do it. Um, And so serving that audience where this is disproportionately important um, is actually it just turns out is a really good business practice. And so I don't know. I feel like we're pretty good. I'm also
3: totally ADHD. And like <laughs> maybe I think we're
2: more focused than we are. I don't know.
3: I think we come up with a whole bunch of ideas. And now our team is is uh,
2: John's pretty ADD
3: too, to be honest. Like, I, we come <laughs> up with crazy ideas all the time. It, it, it's, it's really just our team. that's like, hey, guys, uh, you know, rein it in. Yeah, like we we don't have time for that. <laughs> they're they're a good, they're a good filtering mechanism. Nice. Like, no. sometimes they get excited, especially our data science team, and they just run off and do, you know, like this Caribbean Island study. I was like, "Hey, Ryan, did you know that we can actually download all of the Caribbean Island tourism data?" And he's like, "I got to correlate this immediately." And like so 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 there definitely is uh there's a lot of that especially as it pertains to our specific kind of uh uh, you know, data niche that we've carved out. But uh, we also have, like, <laughs> what was this? Remember Nom Nom Neighbor? We had this, like. Oh, God. It was. <laughs> oh, God. So
2: <laughs> I was really inspired by uh, Richard Branson. I was like, we can totally run two companies at once. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that's really hard. So, like, very early on. This is so
3: before Blue Apron and uh, Munchery. Yeah, and thank God Sprig. we didn't go this route.
2: So we were, you know, very early on at Tribe, like, four or five people. And I'm like, I can totally start another company. Got really inspired, and so we called it Nom Nom Neighbor, and what it was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not mar-
0: not marketers. You just you just sell to marketers. We
2: have terrible <laughs> branding skills. That's actually a good story to talk about is our how we came up with our name story, but um, the <laughs> we're really bad at naming. So uh, so we came up with this name, and the basic premise was that you could. Um, as you know, so the the, the gap we saw was okay, okay. You can order online, but that's really expensive, right? Getting delivery ordered and delivery always kind of sucks. And you can cook for yourself, but particularly as somebody living in a city, it's hard to like have the right ingredients. It takes time, and so we're like, I'd love to buy like lasagna from my neighbor. Um, like that would be really cool because you know then they can find an alternative source of income because they can make three lasagnas instead of one and get a whole rating system going. And you know, and then you get to meet your neighbors. You get the whole Airbnb ethos, whatever. And so it got so far as we were like gonna do it. We had like a <laughs> launch date. We were gonna be geo located. It was gonna be focused on the mission. We had, we had like ten
3: chefs. We had that were ten lined chefs to, like, that we had
2: vetted. Oh, wow, that yeah. were gonna like they had their meals ready, or they like had you know plans for what they were gonna do, and then like. Four days before, we're like, we got to pull the plug. Like, this is impossible. Like, running two companies at once is just, it's just, Our, like, business
3: models. Like, we were going to take a dollar off the top. And then I was like, Connor, do you realize how many meals we have to sell to make any appreciable amount of money? I know. Like, yeah. Think about
1: the mouths you feed. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, I, that's, that's farther along than I thought. I thought your story was going to be, well, we had this great neighbor who made the most phenomenal lasagna <laughs> and we had to figure out how to get it out there.
3: Yeah. No, no, no. And it's it was um, much more like a Gig economy kind of answer, you and guys, specifically in food, where I still think it it doesn't. There is something in between a grocery store and full on like you know pizza delivery that that has to make sense, and it, it, it it's still not there yet. I, I'll I just be honest, you
0: guys you guys lost me at food safety. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh wait, wait. So my quote unquote neighbor is going to make three lasagnas. Yep. So that I mean <laughs> that was also part of the problem. You would need your neighbor's Are, food. Our, our, uh, th- I, I don't know if these are actual names. Who knows where this is coming from? There
2: are some legal issues as well. <laughs> I'm related to no, this My no, neighbor told me. <laughs> my neighbor is. It's
0: so got there, three and a half stars. So they, uh
2: <laughs> You have to. There's like cottage. Lo- I don't know. There's like a whole. Like our, oh, our first you know. employee was actually a paralegal that like dropped out from being a lawyer. And she's like. Guys, I looked this up. This is not legal. Like we can't do this. That's what I figured. Um, And uh, but we, you know, it was very much at the time. You know, this is like crazy. They were exactly. Oh,
3: where I see, you know, where other people see red tape, we see opportunity. That kind of thing. Yeah. Wherever other people see laws, we see opportunities. (laughs) Right. We're just going to break them (laughs) and then say we're a platform. Yeah, we're a platform. We
2: don't serve the meals. Right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's their responsibility to get the licenses. We're just a marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So. So other than nom nom neighbor, yeah. you talked about funding your business through digging ditches. <laughs> yes, correct. Did you fund your business in any other way?
3: Well, like Connor said, it was uh, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, land into a very you know a very successful company uh, right out of school uh, called Marin Software. They IPOed, uh, and as you know, when when a company IPOs, you kind of have this lockup period where you can't sell. So. I think, you know, I, I'd left before, uh, probably a year before the IPO. And so then we were like 18 months in and we were just waiting for the actual day that I could sell all of it to then, you know, plow a bunch of money into tribe. And I think, uh, that was where we were like, really, we were like, okay, if I, if we just get a thousand more dollars, we can make it to Sunday or, you know, Monday morning and and we can make this work. So
2: it was pretty, pretty stretched then. I think. At the same time, we had a lot of so we raised like a hundred thousand at the start from you know um, from some like family and friends, et cetera, and then over time, just raised really small amounts, um, not because we were trying to be really smart with our cap table, but just because you know it was hard, it was hard to raise money um, for us, because I think that we had some background, like I'd been really successful in sales. John had been really successful in the software engineering side, but we were still fairly young without you know much track record. And so, um, you know, since then... But I would say that one of the things that we lucked out on is I think that in the tech space there is this rush to raise capital from tech investors. Like, that's a really common strategy. Um, But it turns out that tech investors just really don't actually provide that much value. Um, The only thing they really provide is, like, you know, an an enhanced network for hiring software engineers, which was not, not something that we really needed. And so for us, you know, most of our cap table initially was raised from people that were within the industry and then you know they'd put in a check for 25 or 50k or whatever. Um, but all of those people became advocates within the industry and actually helped drive a lot of like enterprise value, like actual revenue. Um, and And so I think for us, um, the network that we had initially was just really, really helpful in building out the business. And so on a pure numbers basis, up until recently, we had raised just under a million dollars. And for those that don't know our business, we're about 55 full-time employees. Um, We raised another million dollars maybe six months ago just to kind of pad the balance sheets. Uh, But almost all of our money, like we've been profitable for the last three years straight, like profitable to break even – um, and really grow off of the strength of our customers and we're, you know, more than doubling year over year and, you know, in the like high single digit millions in terms of revenue.
0: And on top of that, you guys are, it sounds like going into different countries as well.
2: Yeah. yeah.
3: We just started our, uh, UK subsidiary, which, uh, uh, is supposed to be our launch pad to Europe, but, uh, we'll see if the, uh, Brexit folks, uh, are going to shut down that strategy. Uh, but no, I think uh, we're we're expanding pretty fast. I think we're gonna we're gonna open up in uh, Asia Pacific you know, as, as well as uh, in Brazil, hopefully in the next year. Or so moving fast.
1: Are there any other future expansion plans and other capital raising that may be on the horizon?
2: I mean, I think for us, the strategy that we've developed over time is we evaluate our finances on an annual basis. So we look at them kind of towards the end of the year, take a quick snapshot of how we think the year went, and then plan for the next year. So I think for us, we'll probably end up doing another, you know, we'll raise some additional capital next year. Um, how much is still to kind of be seen? Um, so I think that's something that we're considering for next year. I think as we think about opportunities, though, you know, to John's point, um, International is a big opportunity, and I think for us, we're getting a lot of demand from our our existing clients to expand internationally, and so, you know, with that, there's probably some increased capital that'll be needed, Um, but again, I think in terms of operating the business, you know, we've found a lot of value in continuing to operate with discipline in the way that we spend things. Like, if you look at our last deck that we raised money with, it was a single white page that said here's how much money we made last year, here's how much money we made this year, here's like, you know, um, (laughs) and we bought Ikea desks for $28, right? Like, that's what our office is outfitted with, is $28 Ikea desks and a few other lines. Um, And we raised a million dollars in a couple weeks with that. Um, And I think... You know, um, so I think we will continue to operate with that philosophy because I think it's very easy to raise a lot of money and then start spending irrationally or start spending on things that are small in nature but add up to a lot of money over time. Um, So I think even if we do raise more money, we won't operate um, significantly differently than we have up until this point.
1: How do you decide what value – how do you value a business like Tribe and and then go raise capital around it?
3: Yeah, I mean I'm happy to talk about my I don't know. Do you want to talk about it? No, I think it's pretty typical, right? Like if if you look at uh companies that are generating some sort of revenue, you just you just kind of pick a multiple and and there's a lot of like SaaS guides out there. So you you say, Okay, here's our here's how much we're doing in terms of top line revenue, here's our growth rate, and like it'll spit out like a, a range of numbers. And then you just go out to the investors with this one pager and you say, Hey, can you give us a million bucks at, you know, this, this valuation? valuation,
1: like, yep. $28 Ikea desks. I <laughs> who's, who's
3: in?
0: I'm, I'm, I'm kind of loving this one page. Right? <laughs> it was, go, uh,
1: this is great. It was kind of
2: surprising. And I think, you know, the thing <laughs> that, that, that made sense to us was like early on, we spent so much time focusing on, uh, you know, how to create the perfect deck and how to right. do all these different things. And, you know, I remember reading something that um, they were talking about how great Twitter's deck was early on. And then somebody responded with, well, like, yeah, their deck was great, but they were also Twitter. Like, you know, being Twitter made it a lot easier. (laughs) Like, build a really great business, and then it makes it a lot easier to raise money, right? Because you actually have a good business. Like, I remember we were having a call with an investor that put in a significant chunk of capital in the last call, and he's like, so, you know, he's like, so why don't you uh, spend more time, like, focusing on the fundraising process, whatever? And it's like, because I'm literally wasting time with you right now that I could be using to drive value in the business. <laughs> right. so like, and they're like, oh, sorry, yeah, we should go. Yeah, go back to doing that, right? <laughs> and, so, um, and it's like, you know, for us, um, <laughs> I think that, again, like, I think that'll change over time as they turn into larger dollar amounts and you know, it's more of a financial transaction. But um, you know, I think in general, build a really good business and it makes everything a lot easier um, has been a good philosophy for us.
1: Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guests, co-founders of Tribe Dynamics, Connor Begley and Jonathan Namneth.
0: Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you like the show, leave us a review. We love the feedback. (laughs) And now back to our episode with Tribe Dynamics, Connor Begley and Jonathan Namneth. So you guys look back on on your experience thus far. When was a or what was your bet the company moment?
2: It's hard to answer because I think over time you make a series of investments or a series of kind of decisions Mm -hmm. um, that all lead to it, and frankly, you try to not make decisions that are about the company moment. <laughs> like that might be the bet the company moment. Is like not making a bet the company
3: moment. Right. We actually have this mantra that it's just <laughs> yeah, it's just two words: "just don't die." <laughs> <laughs> so like it, everyone's like, okay, what are the successful like traits of all these big companies or you know companies that have been around? The the one thing, the only thing that ties them together is that they didn't run out of cash. That like if they you know, we're able to pay their bills, whatever. They live to see another day and fight another day. And so we try not to bet the entire company with single decisions. I, so, I love
0: yeah. that your guys' mantra is the same mantra that I have when I'm playing Super Mario Bros. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. pretty epic.
2: I mean, startups are pretty binary, right? You either like go on to be really successful and do well, or you die. Um, so just don't do
3: one, and it'll probably <laughs> result in the other. Um, so, yeah. But it's actually pretty straightforward, right? Like if you, uh, if you look at how companies die, it's, they run out of cash. They have you know, big fixed costs that they can't overcome. And so how do you avoid that? It's pretty straightforward, right? Don't get yourself into contracts or leases or something like that that are well beyond your means. Uh, you, know, you just have to kind of have that risk management uh, viewpoint there. And, and, and then, then you're really not betting the company, but you're making little small bets that I think add up to a lot yeah i would I would say one bet though that like one thing that I think about when
2: I think about that comment is um early on when we went from okay, we're making fifteen k a month to oh wow we're all of a sudden we're making like eighty k a month, and we need to like hire a team we need that initial team to be the foundation for you know the next uh twenty five people um I think that we made some decisions that were what I would call your betting you know we're betting the future of the company, which was who are the people that are going to take us to that stage? Mm-hmm. And at the time that you're that smaller company, um, you really have limited choices, right? So you can either get somebody that's experienced but may not be all that motivated and it's kind of topped out in terms of their career trajectory, or you can get somebody that is young that is inexperienced but that you know has really high opportunity, right? Or really, you know, is a high top end, um, because getting somebody in between is just way too expensive, generally. And so for us, I think we chose that path of finding people that were really, really talented that didn't have as much experience but saying like, hey, we're going to put you in a position to lead this team um, as we grow as a company. And so it's going to be a really big opportunity for you. And we're going to go out on a limb by saying like we are going to be able to train you and teach you how to be a manager um, you know, uh, when you've never shown that or you've never had that experience. And the thing that's cool is almost our – like our entire executive team has basically never left. Like we've had them since the day that we hired them till now, um, other than one person who was awesome and had some personal experience or personal situations. And so I think for us, um, that was a a bet that we had to place early on where we hired the entire initial team and we bet it all around a few particular philosophies. And I think that one's really
1: panned out well.
2: Um, So that's, that's one of them, I think.
1: So, building off the "don't die" mantra, was there a particular low point that was close to death? Oof.
2: Five thousand dollars in the bank with yeah. five thousand dollars loan out was a definite low point. Well, although we hit profitability that much that <laughs> month. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's been a a series of them. Um, I think on my end, the scary parts are when you're like actually close to dying, which is uh, not fun. So I think when we did hire all those people early on and we're like, oh, revenue is going up into the right. And then we hired a bunch of people. It was like, oh, we overhired a little bit and we don't have that much cash in the bank. And like, we got to make this up, but we're not going to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, that led to us being a little bit more conscientious about how you track revenue and how you track, you know, uh, expenses, etc., so I think, I'm trying to think of other moments where things are, yeah, there's a lot there are, of hairy there moments. are low
3: points when you feel like, you know, you get some negative feedback from a client and it just feels like your whole, like, world is, like, crashing in. That like you're, like, not actually providing value or something like that. And I think it's, it can be, it can be tough at, at times and you just kind of have to.
1: Is there an example?
3: Um,
1: Give us a real, a real taste here. Yeah, with real names. Real names. <laughs>
3: Any particular clients or anything like that?
2: I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example of somebody that gave us really crappy feedback. <laughs> um, I mean early on we worked with a really large uh, a really large brand. I won't name the brand. And they paid us a ton of money when we weren't making that much money, or we paying making like fifty, sixty K a month and they started paying us twenty thousand dollars a month. And then it was just a disaster. Like it, like like they wanted to reach out to a thousand influencers, and so he recommended those thousand influencers. But they didn't vet them, so they reached out to them, and then it pissed off the like all of the the PR teams, and it got up to the president of the brand, and like it was just a total mess. And then like and then after the total mess, it actually kind of leveled out, and we thought it was going great. And then they're like, "Yeah, we can't do this." Like, it was a total wreck. So that wasn't very fun. Um, I think that. I actually get more like I think getting the crappy customer feedback is never fun, but hopefully it's like a learning experience. Yep. I think, um, you know, on a on an interpersonal level from like an employee perspective, like I get really um, uh, sad, I guess is the right word, when, you know, you feel like somebody isn't actually like I'm wasting their time. Like they could actually be doing something that, where they would be learning more, doing more, whatever. And even if it's like the perception of that. Um, I like I don't know like that's I just for me again it's it's ultimately self serving but like you know for me I I get a lot of value out of like helping the existing team that we have grow in their own careers and learn and do things that are cool and you know feel like they're advancing and ultimately that helps me in the end because then you know we can work together in the future uh, but that's something that I always feel kind of crappy about right and I think we've been very very fortunate to have um, hired people that fit what we do well and to create a culture that people seem to like to work at and, uh, where they grow. Um, but you know, occasionally it doesn't work out and that's, you know, that's not fun. I think that's a pretty low point. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah.
1: But it seems like it's mostly been a lot of, a lot of good experiences that you guys have had with drive. And is there a particular high point that stands out? I mean
2: everything was great, other than the first three years. Um, you know, the last two and a half have been fantastic. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What are some of the high points for
3: you? I mean, I think the the high points come all the time, right? It's like if, uh, like, we had our first person have a, a baby while they're at tribe and having them go on maternity leave and, and you know have this wonderful time, uh, getting to kind of uh, start to raise their kid and and that you know people buying their houses and things like that is like just a really awesome experience to to have created all of these uh, really good career opportunities we have a, a we try to we try to pair people well we we actually determine our salaries our own salaries based off of a multiple of the lowest paid person in the company so we're inherently motivated to make sure everyone's well paid and everything like that and so so there are a lot of these these kinds of things like Connor says like seeing people grow up in, in, in ways that are that are tangible is a a lot of fun. And then, you know, obviously when you, when you're doing a good job for a client and you get great feedback or referrals or something like that, that's super motivating. And then, and then there, you know, there are also points where you just kind of get to reflect and, and like, like this and you're kind of like, yeah, actually we've built something pretty cool. And so those, you know, especially the hard years or whatever, it's, uh, we worked through it and it's, and we're kind of here. So I'm
1: fascinated by this multiple concept. So (laughs) what is a fair multiple of the lowest paid employee at a company that you, that uh, you know co-founder should be making
3: 3x 3x That's our answer. But yeah. I mean I I don't know what other people would choose. I I no, think say it was your opinion. Of yeah. It. Yeah. 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 So so I th- I think that's a you know if you look at uh, we we, we kind of did this this uh I can't remember what if it was like an article we read about it was the difference between like American culture in terms mm-hmm. of how we pay uh, executives versus uh i think this one particular was highlighting uh the culture in japan and and actually even the largest companies in japan uh only pay their uh their ceos an average of something like you know 5x their average employee and and having that be you know i think in in of uh the kind of s&p 500 in america it's like uh it's something like 400x it's right. it's something obscene right um so I, I don't, I don't know if, if that was kind of where we started to think about that, but it, I think sometimes it's easy to forget how hard it is to say, like live in San Francisco on like, you know, something small, like, you know, $45,000 a year. And so having that as an expectation is kind of ridiculous. So we're like, how do we make sure that that never actually happens? And, and so you just put in kind of a minimum wage and you say, uh, that that's pretty aggressive and, and make sure that, that we're kind of, uh, Keeping ourselves accountable to that.
0: So, what keeps you up at night, guys?
3: I mean,
2: everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you know we uh, we talk about it a lot. Um, we kind of call it founders insomnia, which is you know for us for the first three years. Maybe this is why they were the worst three years. We lived together. Um, so we lived no, together. That's interesting. First, yeah. All right. The, so we Do would you still live together. No, no. <laughs> we're, we're, we're married now. Yeah. So uh, you. I mean, no, no, we don't live together. And we're not married to each other, (laughs) if that's a question. Um, No, I think the funny thing was our wives, who are our girlfriends at the time, said that we spend a lot more time with each other than we did with them. Um, But, you know, we'd wake up and, like, have coffee in the morning and talk over breakfast about things and then go work all day, come back, be making dinner together, talking about work. And then we would wake up simultaneously at 3 a.m. and be like, I can't sleep. Can you sleep? (laughs) Like, no. And then, like, start thinking about work. And so I think that, um, you know, there are different times where, where it kind of comes up. I think that John gave me some really good advice at one point where he's like, don't fight it, just do it. He's like, just if you're awake at three and all you can think about is work, just do the work and then sleep in and come in a little bit later.
3: Um, and I don't know if that's the best life advice for people in general, but it, it works all right for well, me. I mean, you know, usually there's some idea, right, that's keeping you up. There's some, some train of thought. And if you're sitting there in bed and you're not actually writing something down – then that's when this kind of like circular logic comes in, and then all of a sudden you're just you you're up from like three a.m. to five a.m. and you haven't actually made any progress. If on the other hand you wake up at three with this this horrible you know sweat of like oh I'm you know maybe I'm we're kind of digging ourselves into a hole we've hired too many people or something like that. Well, work it out like open up the spreadsheet and like work through that model. I guarantee that takes a lot less time than keeping yourself up over that. Trying to talk yourself hours. into right. sleeping.
2: Right. So anyways, it's, it's turned into a lot of like, I'll be working from 2 AM to 6 AM <laughs> kind of things. Um, so I think that those are, again, it's, uh, maybe not the best model for everybody. Right. Um, so it <laughs> comes with a disclaimer, but I think for us it works well. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of the things that are keeping us up, you know, international is a big thing. And I think, um, China's a total mess from a data perspective and trying to figure that out. is going to be big. And then I think again, on your, to your question about focus and prioritization is there's a bunch of different opportunities we can go after right We can go after new verticals like we can go after you know um, more heavily into fashion or into travel or into automotive or whatever. Um, or you know we can focus on agencies and publishers which are like another client in this space that we don't really service or we can go into the product sphere and try to help brands create better products using the same data. Um, there's a bunch of different routes that you can take and trying to figure out which is the right route is, um, you know, not always easy because there's no, you know, there's nobody else. Like it's us. You got to make the decision. Um, and so I think that's what I think about the most is like prioritization and making sure that we're kind of, um, you know, focusing on the right things. Um, and then also making sure that we're not hiring too much. Um, I like to hire a lot. John doesn't like to hire a lot. So uh, <laughs> I, run the,
3: I run the money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like whoa 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 Connor dial it back no, it, it it turns out to be a good balance between those two things I think the other the other thing that is interesting for us now is to try to figure out kind of where we focus our personal time uh, yep. like so what is the role of a co-founder or you know of each of us as we're kind of going along I mean at first it was pretty basic like I was building Connor was selling and then now it's like you know how much time do you dedicate to management if you if you have that special skill set for me it's it's software engineering something like that if for connor it's sales you know how much time do you continue to dedicate to that specific craft uh versus all the kind of management stuff that we we should be also focusing on right. so so that's been yep. an interesting thing to try to figure out too so Connor
0: and Jonathan are a unique breed. It's not like they started with an idea. They actually started with this desire to work together. And then Tribe Dynamics kind of came into being.
1: Yeah, and Connor made a good point. I mean, at the end of the day, he and Jonathan, they're not beauty guys. And it really helps them because they're just they're completely focused on the business itself. Not the passion, but the business.
0: Speaking of passions, it's not all about Instagram celebs and marketing budgets outside of Tribe.
2: I actually think we're pretty good about keeping the weekend sacred, so that's kind of when we try to do that time. And I think that I'm forcing John to go on a vacation right now, (laughs) Um, but... You know, for me, like over the summer, I was getting a little burnt out, a little fried. And then I probably took off a little bit too much time because <laughs> like sales slowed down a little bit for a couple months. <laughs> but um, but, you know, I took I was in Africa for three weeks and then I was on a fishing trip for a week and then I was somewhere else for two weeks. And so I was out for like six weeks of summer. But I came out of that like really almost feeling guilty, like I got to do like I got to get back into it. But I think that's a better feeling to have than feeling like, oh, my God, I, I can't go into work today. And so I think that um, I think it's actually really important to, again, view it as a marathon, not a sprint, like make sure that I can do this for 10 years, not for two. Um, And so uh, I actually think we're we're very good about. Well, I mean, I still do a lot of like I wake up in the mornings and do work on the weekends, but like not coming to the office seven days a week, coming in five days a week and trying to trying to disconnect. Um, I feel like we're pretty good at it.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's partially uh, born but born out of our previous startup experiences where we were part of these yep. cultures where it was like he was actually part of a sales team that was on all the time because they were getting leads from like uh, radio ads and stuff like that. So they actually had to have someone on call. Uh, they eventually got sued for it. So. Um, but uh, for which actually me. was
2: a great check in the starting of Christ. Um, <laughs> nice. I didn't do the suing, but you know. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we both had cultures where it was like, You grind seven days a week, you know, and it's that, again, that venture capital model, which we're just not really big fans of, which is, you know, take a bunch of cash, burn people out, try and crank it out in five to year, five to seven years, um, and then turn around and sell the business. And if you don't, then it all comes crashing and burning down. (laughs) Um, and so I think being part of that culture, we, we, you naturally revert from that. We actually like, People give us like Brian Sugar, of uh, Pop Sugar as like an advisor. And every time he comes into a meeting, he's like, wait, why Why aren't you guys raising more money? And he's like, oh, yeah, you guys are the ones allergic to venture capital. Like you guys are the <laughs> ones who hate the venture capitalists. Yeah. It's like I always forget. Like, dah, 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 dah. <laughs> and so uh, I think making sure that we're not taking our biases too strong is, is, in, is important. But,
1: um, yeah. John, you never talk. What, what do you like to do outside of work?
3: I have a kind of weird array of uh, hobbies. I, I really like music, so I, I play ukulele. You uh, grew up playing but violin. You were, oh, I wish I I wish we know. had known <laughs> this. Before. That would have been perfect. Oh, Sorry, <laughs> right. we'll, we'll 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 give yeah. you a call and you'll record it. It'll be great. Uh, and then I, I also uh, watercolor, and then uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's kind of
2: uh, like he's a, much more interesting. Bro, I I don't do anything. Bro, you're like uh,
3: a yeah. you're like a savant. I know. <laughs> I, I like to read a lot, and then I also like to learn a lot of different languages. Although I'm not actually good at any of them, <laughs> I just like to pick up like enough phrases. That I can kind of uh, I don't
2: at know, one point he was studying that. for his MD at Berkeley for a while while
3: you know, while doing, this. Well, stuff, the, the doing pre, this the pre the pre med classes but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. organic chemistry while well, I was like probably right because
0: because O is really gonna come in come in helpful here <laughs> well so what he was <laughs>
2: thinking about long term again was uh, if you look at most of the biotech companies even the people that are on the technical side have an MD mm-hmm. often or PhD and so or a PhD and so, yeah. PhD. And so uh, he was diving into that but i don't know i still
3: think like the the intersection between technology and 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 just biotechnology in general is just it's just it's colliding at an ever faster rate but it also is is behind the rest too so because of the kind of uh the regulatory structures and everything like that like the 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 are actually behind where they should be and i think additionally there's some there's if you work with researchers in the field, they actually have a lot of need from the kind of software engineering side, which is born out of the fact that they can't actually pay people enough money to get talented people. So I think, I still think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, I'm not convinced that I'd need to get an MD, although <laughs> I did enjoy uh, organic chemistry. That oh, wow. Mostly because it was a, a distraction uh, where you, know, you can't think about anything else in order to kind of right. do well at that. So, so that was good.
2: Didn't you get like a ninety-eight?
3: I don't I I don't know if I, I I don't know what it I I ended up getting an A plus in the second semester, and then I was like, you know what, I don't think I need to do this anymore. I didn't kind of proved myself out. So. But, yeah. That's impressive.
1: <laughs> All right, John Connor, you ready for the big moment? This is our rapid fire game. Sixty seconds per person. So we're doubling that simple math. We're gonna God. fill in the blank. You ready? <laughs> yes. Yep. All Here right. we go.
0: The first thing that you read every day is the Wall Street Journal.
1: Twitter. The brand that you most admired in your space is? NYX. Anastasia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the last movie you saw that moved you was?
3: Oh, God. Uh, I don't watch movies that move me.
1: <laughs> Gifted. Your biggest celebrity crush is? Anna Kendrick. Jennifer Aniston. that was pretty fast. (laughs) Um,
0: If you could be a superhero, you'd be?
2: Batman. Oh, God. This is a weak answer. Superman. (laughs) It's an awful answer.
1: If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Dustin Hoffman.
2: Oh, God. That's a great (laughs) answer. You thought about that? Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to really overstate. Ryan Reynolds. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Who's the guy from Harry Potter? The- Rupert
0: yeah. Oh wow. Um if you were a friend's character, you'd most likely be
3: Joey.
1: Uh Chandler. In For your sure. wallet, people might be surprised to find. Oh god. Nothing. I have a really small wallet. <laughs>
2: Also, nothing because I don't have a wallet. He I left it on a plane. It all the I time. lose it repeatedly. Oh my god! So, uh, I have a tile
3: that goes unused. You <laughs> That's know, sad.
0: Uh, your hometown is famous for.
3: Oh, the the guy who who has the record for throwing the paper airplane the farthest, like unaided or anything. You know, so he threw the, air, the paper airplane. <laughs> oh, Joe Ayub. Oh wow. <laughs> He's a
2: quarterback for Cal. So mine was uh, Indian food. So it's uh, Fremont has like one of the highest Indian populations in the country.
3: Nice.
1: We all have guilty pleasures. And your biggest one is. Oh, God.
2: <laughs> Just go. Right. Yeah. Oh, is that two minutes? Oh, we got two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pizza. Tony's.
3: Tony's pizza for sure. <laughs>
2: oh, that place is
0: good. For the founders out there, what what words of advice would you give them?
3: Revenue makes companies work great. Uh,
2: Actually generating revenue, if you're the type of business that can generate revenue early on, turns out that's a really important thing. I think this is more relevant for Silicon Valley companies that don't focus on that as an objective. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's corrected a bit in the last few years. Like, I feel like people have kind of figured that out a little bit more. Actually, here's mine. Hire really awesome people like hire the best possible people you can like go out on a limb don't be afraid to go recruit the best candidate you could possibly get for that position early on for us we said okay i want to hire a data scientist well what are the top five schools in mathematics in the country i want to recruit from those schools um so i think hire really awesome people would probably be my uh my actual recommendation
0: it's great advice
3: yeah don't be afraid to hire someone smarter than you are yeah, that's lame. <laughs> Everybody, it, it, it's it's, 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 true it's Very basic, you're right. You're right. but you're, you're, you know, you're, some you're. people actually are scared of hiring someone smarter than they are. Yeah, and I just don't have a problem with it. No, it's
1: much. better. You seem to set life. a pretty high bar, though. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I like it. Perfect. perfect. We're gonna end it there. You're like, agree.
0: <laughs> All right. Oh, God. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin.
1: And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Cheryl O'Loughlin, CEO of Rebel Beverages, whose entrepreneurial roller coaster forced her to rethink how she approaches business and family entirely.
0: We almost went bankrupt. Um, Personally, we were on the hook for all this money. We had this lease that we didn't know how we were going to find our way out of. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.